0: Thanks for listening. With more than four years of weekly discussions for product managers and leaders, we have covered a lot of topics. For the rest of July 2019, I'm bringing back some of the early episodes that I believe are most important for your work and success. A lot of listeners haven't heard these yet, but they are so valuable. I'm also using this time to reformulate the podcast to make it even more valuable for you. More on that later. Now, to the intro. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast
1: for product managers, developers, and innovators.
0: Your host is Chad McAllister, who gives you innovation training your customers will love you for. Get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. I'm really excited today to have a discussion with our guest because this is going to be a value-packed discussion on how do we validate concepts for products? Before we actually start the development, so I am with the author of Running Lean, Ash Mariai, and he is also working on a new book, The Customer Factory. And this might not be the title that you s- stick with, I know, Ash, but The Customer Factory, a blueprint for creating remarkable, successful businesses. Ash, you were originally educated as an electrical engineer and then worked in software development before founding your first company, which was Wired Reach. And you are now a founder and CEO of Spark 59, equipping entrepreneurs to succeed by providing tools, content, and coaching. And Ash, really appreciate your time to talk with me and my listeners today about product development.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. It's a pleasure.
0: For background, I came across your materials because at the time I was looking into the business model canvas a little bit further. Sure. And for those who aren't familiar, this is a tool for developing a simple one-page business plan and has become very popular. And I was looking for a canvas I could adapt for as a product manager for really building a business plan for a product, run a single product. And in the process of looking, I came across Lean Canvas. And now uh, also you've added to that and you have the Lean Stack. And I just found it a really helpful tool. And appreciate you making these tools and making them available.
1: Great. Thanks.
0: And I know we'll dive into that more. Before we get there, just want to get a little glimpse into your life. So you're an Austinite living in Austin, Texas. How long have you been there? Going
1: on maybe nine years now
0: okay what was that out of college you moved or when did you make that?
1: No move? so I so a lot of people don't know the background. I'll just give you the, the kind of the short biographical story but mm-hmm. I actually didn't grow up in the US. I uh, am born to parents from India but I grew up in Africa in Nigeria mm-hmm. uh, did my schooling there and then came here for university in upstate New York, Rochester mm-hmm. so RIT. That's where I did my double E electrical engineering. And then after that, I joined a company there in telecom, Nortel, but then moved to Dallas first with a startup. Hmm. And then while I was in Dallas, I started my own company and then moved to Austin. And Austin was really, I tell people, it's the only city I actually got to pick, you know, with an open slate because everything else you're constrained by. You know, where you can not pick where you're born, you can sometimes pick where you go to school because you get admitted in certain different places. Work takes you places. But this was a time where I was completely free to pick and I picked Austin. So, yeah, I've been very happy with that decision.
0: It's a great decision. You know, when we think about the meccas that are really uh, startup hot, right, where companies are being created, we have Silicon Valley and I live close to Boulder, Colorado, and Seattle's been doing some inter- interesting things. But Austin, has always been held up as the place outside of Silicon Valley that you go to if you really want to be part of the startup community and that feel that startup energy. So, yeah. So let's see how much of an Austinite you actually are. <laughs> so I almost moved to Austin once upon myself too, and, and uh, don't know the area well, but know a few things about it. So do you have a
1: favorite food truck? Favorite food truck? There are now so many to pick from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for a while, it used to be Franklin's. They're no longer in a food truck. They now have a brick and mortar kind of restaurant yeah I would say you know there's there's a new Thai one that just opened up. I mean it's just it changes because that whole food truck phenomenon has just been incredible that yep. there's a whole bunch of them that are starting up and some really amazing ones and so it's really more of a question of what is your favorite food truck at the moment okay. more than and
0: what about breakfast tacos?
1: I'm a big taco deli fan. Okay. So so here it's kind of like religion. There's the Torchy's taco group, and then there's a taco deli. And for me, it's more taco deli.
0: Okay. So, so much you're doing well as an Austinite. (laughs) Any place you order off the secret menu at a restaurant?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that. I know there's there's actually been even some posts of those things going around. No, I, I usually am, am someone who will pick a few dishes that I like just off the main menu, but then I'm kind of a regular in that way. I'll, I will venture out, but there are usually a few dishes that I just stick to. Okay.
0: And here's the last stereotype question. Yoga. Are you uh, Do you practice yoga?
1: Yes, absolutely. Been doing that for like maybe that probably going in seven years now.
0: Okay. So at least it was since you've have lived in Austin. Yeah, yeah. Started that year. Yeah. I'm flirting with it right now myself. I, I do about a, a 10 minute stretching each morning with yoga. And
1: sure, I, I well, want to get one, into more. <laughs> well, and the one that I do, and so being, you know, and this is also post lean. So lean, I, I describe lean as being a lot about efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so I find that for me, the hot yoga, that's what I do. It's kind of three things in one. So the heat is good. It's like going, being in the sauna for 90 minutes. So you sweat a lot. Just that itself has its benefits. Mm-hmm. But then there's the physical, it's physical enough. You're not going to become, you're not going to gain muscles doing that, but it's physical enough that it's, you you know, it, it strains you and you stretch a lot, but then there's the mental aspect of it. So with the heat and with that physical exertion, you have to stay focused. So to me, it's again, mind, body and the heat, which is like three things in one.
0: So I'm wondering about that, about a morning routine. It seems like almost everyone I talk to lately, they talk about their morning routine a way to get their day started, be more productive. Do you have a morning routine or something else that you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll do yoga three days in a week. So usually that is part of it. Mm -hmm. And it's this particular class starts really early. And I got into this habit because of kids. So I wanted to get things like this out of the way and not be interrupted by work as well. So it's a 90 minute class, but it starts at 530 in the morning. So that's pretty early for most people. And so that's a big part of it. But coming back from that, I don't feel like I've worked out. I feel more refreshed. And then besides that, on the other two days, I usually wake up at about the same time to write. So Mm -hmm. it would be writing for either a book or a blog post or just something. So kind of, you know, exercise that. And that to me has been, again, another thing I've just built in to be able to do that when there's the least amount of interruption. And then beyond that, you know, I'll wake up, the kids will kind of wake up at some point and, you know, I do the drop off every morning. So that's part of the routine. Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah, you get to take them to school.
1: Exactly. Provided I'm in town. I mean, once a month, that's another part of the routine where I I travel to a new city every month somewhere in the world. So on those weeks, I can't do that. But all the other weeks, that's part of the regular routine.
0: Right. And on the traveling, you're traveling, giving workshops on your teaching for Lean Startups.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Are you finding good destinations and good people to work with?
1: Yeah, I've been very um, blessed that way. I'm very happy that there's such an international audience for this, that it's more a question of picking a place that I'd like to go to. And then we can often make that happen. There's enough interest in just enough places around the world that it's never been that big of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier when someone invites me over because then they handle all the logistics and we don't have to do anything. I just have to get on a plane and show up. But short of that, you know, we can make an event happen in almost any city. And that's been a good problem or a good thing to have, I would say.
0: Absolutely. You get to go to places that you enjoy and work with uh, people that are interested in the concepts. Yeah. So let's talk about the concepts a little bit. So your book, Running Lean, is all about really creating models and running experiments and collecting data to determine if a product concept will be successful or not, right, before we actually make it. Sure. And I'm wondering about your motivation, where this came from, your interest in being successful with products.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned in in my background, this company Wired Reach. Mm -hmm. And I often share the story of entrepreneurs being in, in kind of these three stages. And I definitely went through those three stages. And when most entrepreneurs start out their companies, and that's how I certainly started Wired Reach, it's around this big idea, this grand idea. And so I had this idea back in 2002 to build a social network before that was even a term. So this was pre friendster mm-hmm. And it was built on, it was going to be a private social network because I didn't think people would publicly share all their contact information in the way we have done. And so I was busy kind of building that out. And then all of a sudden, Friendster launched. And of course, I was, you know, at first terrified that, oh, my God, the idea is out. And now this race has begun. But then I looked at what they were doing and convinced myself that my approach was different because it was private and we would still be fine and we would kind of differentiate that way. So that's kind of how this, you know, that's how I started that company. And so I didn't do a lot of validation. I did a lot of things of of building the idea in stealth, you know, not telling anyone, even once competition came out, kind of rationalizing the fact that because we are different, we will still persevere and survive. But it was only several years afterwards that I realized that we weren't getting the necessary kind of traction. You give people a Twitter handle or a Facebook handle, even these days, and they will kind of tweet their, share their life away. So privacy was not the reason. Our, all of our benefits around privacy was kind of falling on deaf ears. And that's when I kind of did what we will, in kind of modern terminology, be a pivot. So kind of take everything that we had, take all the learning we had, and said, how can we use the technology? How can we use the learning? and shift it into something else. And so that kind of shifted more towards a collaboration platform rather than it being social networking, and eventually found some products that had some business value being created in them. And that's kind of how that shifted. But when I was talking about the three stages, the first stage I call is the artist stage. So we are kind of inspired by building something new and different, and that's what drives us. At some point, artists have to eat too. So I call that the artists are starving stage. And that was kind of two years into this company when I realized that, OK, this idea is not really going to go anywhere and I need to find a sustainable business model here. So that's when I shifted and began to, again, leverage what I had and use them in these other smaller kind of offshoots of products. And I had a lucky break. and But I guess maybe another shift there is I began to share my platform a lot more publicly before it was all stealth because the idea was too precious. But I began to share it. I started a blog And that blog is what attracted my first major customer that also helped me bootstrap my company. Hmm. And so that's kind of how that went. So I moved into stage two, which was the artists have to survive. And eventually that itself was not enough because I found myself running a business that where essentially my it had pivoted so much from my original vision that while it was a sustainable business, it's not where I found passion and purpose anymore. And so at that point, I went into stage three, which is the entrepreneurs need to find that passion or purpose in their customers and in their work. I mean, that's what prompted me to sell the old business and do what I'm doing now. But along the way, the thing that kind of got me specifically into lean was not a big wipeout failure, right? So this was something I talk about in some of the entrepreneurs I work with. A lot of people look at entrepreneurship as a very risky proposition. People are like, oh, you know, you have to be an inventor. You have to be the one who jump off a cliff to start a company. And I look at entrepreneurship very differently. I look at it as I'm actually very risk averse and I look at removing all the risk from the equation Mm -hmm. and setting up certain ground rules. So even when I started this company, I made a pact with my spouse at the time. She's still married to me, but we were married back then, too. But I told it I would not miss a paycheck, and that was one of the the conditions for me being an entrepreneur. And so that was how I started that company. And so I tend to be more risk averse, and I want to remove risk. Right. So I didn't so have you wanted to make sure
0: you could eat too, and make sure that survival stage yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. At on this point, I think this is a common misconception about entrepreneurs that actually entrepreneurs are really good at risk management, right? At right. Quantifying and bounding the risk. And the employee in an organization, you know, at least for the last decade, you really don't have an idea of what the actual risk is to your position because you just can't see everything. As an entrepreneur, at least you can take control over that.
1: Right. And so, I mean, going back to your just kind of a long answer to your question of how it got sparked into this lean body of work. But you know, through that journey, it was not a big wipeout failure necessarily, but it was really this looking back and saying that I had built lots of products. Some had been successful. Some had been complete failures. Looking back while I was living through it, it was not a, it was, I didn't feel it as much because again, it was not a big wipeout failure, but I was really looking for more. What bothered me more was the time I was spending. Like going from idea one to idea two was about a two year cycle time. Mm -hmm. And then idea two to three was again, one and a half to two years. And for me, that was bothersome because I had, So many ideas I wanted to test, but the resources that I had, the time that I had was so scarce that I wanted to find faster ways to get through those kinds of testing. And so that's when I ran into some of the early works of uh, Eric Ries and Steve Blank. They were talking about this thing called the Lean Startup, Mm -hmm. and they were sharing some of the things that I had tried, but they had some better solutions in place. I had tried talking to customers, but had failed miserably because whenever I listened to them, I went down these wild goose chases, for instance. And so they were talking about some better ways of dealing with those kinds of things. And so I was, my piqued my interest enough that I started my own, I went first looking for answers, found that I had even more questions than answers, and so began to run some of my own tests with my future products. And eventually all that morphed into what became Running Lean from there.
0: Very good. When it comes to this Running Lean, so this concept, product managers, a lot of us are used to Agile processes these days and agile development methodologies, but lean still tends to be a term, at least in the product management community, that is misunderstood, right? Do we mean we're starting with no money? Do we mean we're trying to eliminate waste? Is it something only startups do? Can you bound that a little bit, how you you think about lean?
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll first just talk about the origin of lean. So definitely the, the first big misconception is lean kind of with being scrappy or bootstrapping a business. And that's not an accurate kind of uh, definition. So lean goes back to lean from lean manufacturing, the Toyota production system, and the big mantra there is one of reducing waste. Now when we bring it to business and we bring it to kind of entrepreneurship and starting new products whether it's as an entrepreneur or in a large organization, the scarcest resource that we have uh, when we talk about being efficient is not so much people or money, because those things can fluctuate up or down, but it's really the time that we spend on these products and kind of time to market, time for learning, all of those kinds of things. And so my definition of a lean organization is one that maximizes learning about what's riskiest in their business per unit time. So the organizations that can do that very fast actually will win. Now, drawing the parallel or kind of drawing the distinction with Agile, I look at Agile as being very focused on the build part of The the equation is that let's talk about, you know, the stories and the customer requirements and let's measure progress in terms of how much stuff we can deliver that is feature complete, that is, you know, code complete, test complete, that is actually, you know, per spec. Mm -hmm. Lean kind of adds on to that and says that, you know, we have actually gotten pretty good at building stuff, but the bigger leap of faith is at the end of the day, you know, will customers follow through? Will they actually use the stuff that we build and will they get the value that they were promised when we started building this and because of a lot of the handoffs that happen, it's very easy to go astray. We end up building too many features or the wrong product, even though it's per spec, it's feature complete, it's code tested. It just, it doesn't deliver on value. And so that in the lean world would be a form of waste. So the way I kind of add on to that is that we do everything kind of that we've prescribed in agile. You want to have iterations. You mm-hmm. want to build things in small batches. But at the end of it, there's a check mark. In Agile, we have this done state, but we don't really describe what done means. Uh, it's not a, a hard definition. For some teams, it's code complete. For some, it's pushed to production. For others, it's something more customer accepted. But in Lean, you're only done when you have gotten certain validated learning from customer usage. So they have used your product and they liked it or didn't like it. And you have data either qualitative or quantitative to back that. And that's when you're done.
0: Very good. So the levers that you're pushing on there to make that happen, you said two things really stood out to me. You said lean is involving reducing time. So it's the time to knowing if this concept is going to be viable or not. Something that all companies are concerned about is getting things done more quickly, time to market. And then the other thing in addition to the time was products that customers really value. right? So yes. getting to a place where we are not just getting done with the build or getting done with that sprint, but getting things in the customer's hands that they actually value. correct. And I, I think that's one of the affinities I have so much for the work that you've done is having developed so many products myself and at times getting to the point where the product is out and going, Oh, the customers didn't well, we receive this the way that we expected that they would. And tools that we can get as product managers to help us prevent that <laughs> would be really welcome. So let's walk through a discussion of those tools. And let me give you a scenario. Let's say I'm a product manager considering a new concept something I think the customers want, have good indications about that already. I might have the tendency to just want to dive right in and start developing at least get a prototype put together and get feedback on that from my customers and rush through a development cycle. What should I do instead to really validate this concept to give me ideas if it would be successful or not?
1: Sure. So the big epiphany I had, and so I, I came from a product background as well. And so when most people get hit by an idea, they do one of two things. They either rush to kind of build that prototype and say, you know, is this even feasible? Let me go build it out. And we the mistake we make is we've got that artist syndrome. We go too far and we then start polishing this product because we want to make it, you know, look just right, feel just right. And so we take too long releasing that out to, to customers. The other thing that we often do is we go and start, you know, if, if the product is going to take a long time, we start to get permission from others. So we might get an investor or get somebody in the company to say, I need a budget for this, start building the team, and we do all this planning work behind it. And I say that both of those things take a lot of time, money, effort to kind of put together. They're also backwards because going back to what I said a bit earlier, the bigger leap of faith is not, can we really build this thing, but will anyone care? Mm-hmm. So what we tend to do here is really shift things around Is we want to really ask the question, can we find customers before we even build this product? And for me, that was a big epiphany. there was a big light bulb moment. And that was realizing that the solution that we build is not the true product, but rather it's a working business model. So as a product manager, I would encourage them to kind of step back and whether you are a product manager or an entrepreneur, step back from the idea and not look at it in terms of the kind of the features and the solution, but rather look at it from a business model perspective. And that's where this one page business model concept has become very popular because it's not an arduous process. Several years ago, you know, we'd be writing big business cases or business plans, and they would take several weeks of our lives. And at the end, nobody would still read them. But today, we can get these concepts out. I liken it a lot to playing with Lego pieces. We can put these pieces together and see how the business model works with our ideas. Um, and then we can change it up a little bit and see if it works any better. But that, to me, is step one, is you mm-hmm. want to take that Initial blueprint of your idea deconstructed down into those building blocks.
0: Okay, so let's walk through those building blocks a bit. And having gone through your lean canvas from the product management perspective, the thing that I appreciate so much is instead of getting enamored with features and hopefully benefits for customers, but a lot of time we get kind of stuck in that right off the bat when we find an idea we like and we start thinking about the features that we need to put together to provide value, you focus immediately on looking at the customer segments and looking at the problem they actually have. That's right. So, what are those building blocks that we need to put together?
1: Sure. So, often everyone has an inkling of typically the thing that is clearest in their mind is the solution, because that's just how we're wired. We tend to be more solution driven. So, you've got a solution, but you still have an inkling of who your customers might be. If I kind of push people to say, you know, who's going to use this solution, you might, you know, rat out some customer segments. And then from there, the harder part is extracting the problem. So, why does this really matter to that customer? So we often think that if we just put a great solution out in front of a customer, they're just going to connect the dots and see it and get all excited. And that's I've done that so many times and I've not had that reaction. You actually have to communicate problems and value propositions rather than just putting up a bunch of features out there. Even benefits sometimes get misconstrued. Mm -hmm. Um, So ultimately, customers don't care about your solution. They care about their problems. And so it's very important to back away from your solution and really focus in on what are the problems those particular customers have and why. So those become the foundation of the canvas. And then from there, once you have a better understanding of customers, their problems, the solutions become apparent. If you can define a problem with enough specificity, it's much easier to then articulate what the top features might be. Once you have that, the intersection of, the customer's problem with your solution is really the value proposition or the promise that you might make to them. So if I, I'm considering building this advanced job board matching site that kind of takes resumes in and matches them with the right employer, for instance, maybe it's a lot of, kind of big data mining in the back end. And you know, I could go ahead and pitch you the big data algorithms, but you're going to be like, well, I just want a job. I don't care how this right. thing works. Right. So ultimately, the value proposition would be let me see what you want. So in this particular case, you would want a job. You're probably time constrained because you may want to get a job in 30 days or 60 days. I mean, you don't want just any job. You want a good job, a dream job. So if I said, you know, use our platform and we help you find your dream job in 60 days or we'll give you your money back, that's an example of a value proposition. Notice I didn't talk about the big data algorithm thing in there but I have to back it up some way. But the idea of that value proposition is that it opens up the window for you to say, Hey, how are you going to be good on, uh, do good on that promise. Mm-hmm. And that's where I can then talk about the big data algorithm. And I can convince you with, you know, in one way or the other, that, you know, take a chance with us because we will deliver on that. So that's kind of how I would look at that building, that part of the building block. And then on the canvas, some of the other things that you would talk about are your channels. So once you know who your customers are, how would you reach them? Uh-huh. Initially, at small scale, but eventually at scale, every business has to be able to reach, kind of build that path to customers, or even the best products will not survive. Other boxes there kind of get into the business model economics. So we talk about revenue streams. So where is monetizable pain and how does that pain equate to revenue coming in either from your users or your customers? And then on the flip side, what is the, your cost structure? How much does it cost you know, per unit or marginally to build this product? And where does profit really come from? And how does this scale out? And then some of the other pieces there are around metrics. How would you know that you're being successful? And then finally, your unfair advantage. So whether you like it or not, if you have any kind of success, you're going to attract competition, you're going to attract copycats. Mm -hmm. So how will you fend off against them? So those are the, the basic building blocks. And the nice thing is that when you walk this canvas, it's very interesting, but you can look at it from many different perspectives, from the investor perspective, from the advisor perspective, from the builder perspective, uh, from the customer perspective. And so it gives you all these different perspectives. And when you can tell a compelling story from all those different angles, you actually have something interesting.
0: Very good. So just to recap, so there's a one page canvas of your business model. And in my context, for a new product, could be for a startup, could be for a new endeavor. Looking at the customer segment, looking at the problem they have, the value proposition, which is more focused on not how you're going to solve the problem, but what the problem is and why they care what the real benefit is for them. The channels, how you're going to reach the customer, your revenue stream, and make money. So if back to your artist uh, scenario know, so we can move into this eating and surviving stage, shall we hope? Right. Um, Your cost structure, the success metrics you're going to use to measure your progress along the way, right? Right. And then that unfair advantage to help you fend off competitors and keep your customers. So that lays a good foundation to really help me think about a new product I might develop and put the pieces together. And then the next stage that you've talked about is running experiments and actually getting feedback from customers.
1: Right. And so this is kind of the big contribution of the lean startup is looking at every product every initiative we do as one big experiment and the nice thing is that even though we use this fancy term experiment entrepreneurs have been experimenting product managers have been experimenting with products for years since the beginning of time and every time you build something and put it out there you are really experimenting because you then measure whether this product actually works or not the only thing is that we have been running pretty lousy experiments up until now because we have been doing these big experiments you know we had six months to build a product and we take all six months just to build it. And then we put it out there and realize, oh crap, you know, this is not the right thing. And then we come and start tweaking it, put it out again. So there are these big batches of experimentation. And what the lean approach kind of encourages you to do is to shrink those batch sizes down. So rather than running these big batches run small, fast experiments and also be creative with the experiments. You don't have to test complete features. You can also not even test product. You might test things like your landing pages, for instance. So if you have a great product, but no one ever gets past the landing page because they don't get it, then again, it's like the tree in the forest kind of is right. that no one's ever going to get to use that uh, millions of lines of code that you're writing back there. So again, that's where we can get a lot more creative in what we experiment than we were testing many different assumptions in your business model. So that Lean Canvas being the first step, there's a, big, there, there's a big acceptance there that a lot of those, while it may be a compelling story on paper, they're still, to use a fancy term, hypotheses, or to use a more layman's term, they're guesses mm-hmm. on what we think will happen. So the next step is really getting outside the planning phase and going running experiments to validate those core assumptions.
0: Okay, and the value of the hypothesis or that guess is it helps us to actually think about maybe assumptions we're making and information that we really need to verify and be tangible and concrete about that and brings it to mind. What does a typical experiment look like? How do you get the customer information?
1: Sure. So customer information, you mean in terms of how do you get in front of them or how do you get the data?
0: Maybe I put together five key guesses that I really need to validate to know if my product concept is going to be viable or not. How do I collect the data to test those?
1: so the experiment kind of again following that lean startup kind of framework goes through three stages there's a build stage where we build something now this doesn't as i said doesn't have to be limited just to building a product it could be building a landing page it Mm -hmm. could even be building a sales script or a pitch of some sort but the idea is that we based on what we're trying to test and maybe on that too there's a prioritization step on the canvas you're going to have these nine building blocks and trying to test everything at once can be overwhelming So you do have to prioritize and identify what might be the riskiest assumptions. So oftentimes in the beginning, it's pretty obvious to find out where the riskiest assumptions are. They're really your customer problem hypotheses, Mm -hmm. because if you get those things wrong, then it's very easy to see that what you build is going to not be the right product. Your channels will not work because you're going after the wrong customer segment. Everything else falls apart. Sure. So at the beginning, we, we can prioritize that way. And so once you have those riskiest assumptions We then build something to go test them. So I might at a very early stages build a landing page and try to drive some traffic and measure click-throughs, for instance. Or I might do something a bit more in person. I might go and try to set up interviews. I might use my network or, again, use a landing page to get some leads, but then go talk to them about what it is I'm trying to do or about about the problems I'm trying to address and see if there's resonance for them. So there's a build stage and there's a measure stage, and that measure stage can be done either qualitatively, so that would be a conversation, you know, more in-person types of things, or quantitatively, which might be click-throughs on a, on a landing page or click-throughs even on an ad unit to see, is there even interest being generated? And then the last part of the experiment is the learn stage. So once we collect enough data, we then start to formulate or validate or invalidate our hypotheses going in. And that then fuels the next set of experiments that we will run from there.
0: Okay. When it comes to actually doing the customer interviews, you mentioned yeah. that was one technique, right? It might do the landing page. So speaking as a, a former engineer, <laughs> I know, I'm sure there's some listeners that are going, I actually have to go out and talk to customers about things I don't know much about. What's that structure like? You know, I think that would make, I know that in the past would have made me really uncomfortable. Yep. And how do you do that?
1: No, that's a great question. So I talked about how I came from a technical background myself, Mm -hmm. and I actually was a closeted geek and I would invent ways to not talk to customers. So I came up with surveys and emails and I'm like, don't talk to me, just, you know, reply, you know, using this little survey thing or email me or your responses or get into my trouble ticketing system and I'll fix whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a catalyst moment. I was getting in a few times I did talk to customers. They drove me on wild goose chases. They were like, Oh, why don't you go and do this and that and the other And I would go do this, that, and the other and come back to them. And they would give me another laundry list of things to go do because the product was never perfect. And these guys were my free users. They weren't even the ones who were paying me. Meanwhile, my paying users were very quiet because their needs had been met six months ago. So for me, that realization kind of prompted me to say, if I'm going to go talk to customers, there needs to be some kind of a script for doing it. Mm -hmm. So in my book, I mean, we can walk through that if it's helpful, but in my book, I outline some of the learning objectives. And the idea is not to be very prescriptive, but there are definitely certain learning goals. So in the first set of interviews, it's not about your solution, but really about your customer problem hypotheses. So the way I structure that interview is I usually lead off with a backstory that describes the top problems that I'm trying to address. And I look for resonance. And I like to do the initial ones in person because like this conversation, when I can see the other person, I can kind of get a sense of, body language and cues i can see their interest level if we were doing this just over a phone call it's hard to pick up on those cues and sometimes the uncomfortable silence could be them multitasking or it could be them being confused or you have no idea so it's much better to see that person so i usually will talk about the problems and then i would kind of look for some resonance there and if they say oh yeah these are problems we have we then go into exploration so it's an open ended conversation about so tell me how did you solve this problem the last time And almost like a movie director, like documentary style, you want to uncover the story. And that's a very important part of that interview is you want to be able to get in the customer's voice what their workflow really looks like. And so it's not about knowing the answers, but that's what's very fun about this. And so going into these things, I wasn't sure how the interviews would come out. But each time when I did them, I realized that I learned so much about the customer workflow than I did going in and that helped me build a much better product to follow. And that's kind of the part that became very, very addictive. And while I was reluctant to do these interviews in the beginning, now I don't, do, I don't launch any product or even any f- major feature without doing some of these kind of checklist types of items.
0: This reminds me of an Einstein quote when he said something like, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes studying it. And that's what you're doing. You're trying to get into the life of the customer and figure out the problem they actually have and where it fits into their workflow.
1: Right. It's it's very amazing. So it's not even just the customer, but sometimes even the context in which they're getting this problem or in which the problem surfaces. So I've been more and I'll just kind of plug this in here, but I've been more interested by this jobs framework. So jobs Mm -hmm. to be done. And there, it's, it's an interesting kind of twist on that is that the problem isn't enough. The situational context is just as important. So if I take a problem of being hungry, so I'm hungry right now, my solution space is almost infinite. I could eat all kinds of things to quench that hunger. But if all of a sudden I put in a situational context, like I'm hungry, but I'm also in a hurry and I need to be in a meeting in 20 minutes, then maybe you know the pizza I had last night, putting that in the microwave is the best Kind of solutions, so I've all of all of a sudden constrained my infinite solution space down to a few things.
0: If it's me, I even forget about the microwave and just grab the cold (laughs) slice of pizza. Just the cold
1: slice. I'm happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because one thing I want to make sure that product managers aren't thinking is that we're just asking customers what they need, right? Yes. And you know, there's a famous quote which is probably wrongly attributed, but we all like it about you know Henry Ford was asked, yeah, yeah. right? People would have said they need a faster horse, right? You know, to
1: figure. But And even there, so I, I will channel, you know, Steve, just late Steve Jobs. So yeah. he actually kind of talks about how it's not the customer's job to know what they want. And I think that sums it up very well mm-hmm. is that from customers, what we want to do is really understand their problems in the situational context of how they're solving them, where they're getting stuck, where the pain points are, not asking them for solutions, because that's our job. We, the product managers, we, the builders are the one that own that box on the canvas. But once we understand the problems well enough, we can then go design the best possible solutions to fix those problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well stated. So some of my product management work has involved ethnographic research, user observations. Sure. And from what I've seen of your work, we're typically talking about customer interviews. I'm curious if you just have had this as part of the mix or not doing any kind of ethnographic research as part of understanding customers' problems.
1: Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of that, and actually, I almost look at that as a prerequisite. So sometimes when, when people read my book, they see me as being you know t- totally a big fan of the in-person kind of interview, the explicit customer interview. But if you look at kind of the spark of the idea, usually it is through some observation of a of some kind. So how that idea even you know enter your head is because you looked around and you saw a problem out there that you said, "Hey, this is just not right. I can actually do much better." Right? So there was some kind of subtle observation happening, maybe even unconscious at that point. But I'm also a big fan of any time you can go and just be a fly on the wall, if you're allowed to and you can study your customers, that's kind of the best form of learning because the interviews themselves, you have to, I'm not going to make it overly complicated, but you have to eventually get some good skills of lie detection because mm-hmm. sometimes out of politeness, people will tell you things just to get you off or just to not be confrontational. And so there are some techniques and one of them is exploring, you know, so don't ask people whether they will use a product like this, but rather ask them when is the last time they have used a product like this, Mm -hmm. you know, in the recent history, you know, when was it and get very specific. That's why I kind of gave the documentary style analogy there. So there are some techniques for running good interviews that, you know, we can get into. But observation, the nice thing with it is that if you can just be a fly on the wall, you can observe your customers in their natural kind of habitat and setting. And that's a great, great luxury to have if you can do that without affecting the results.
0: Yeah, sometimes we get our best insights about what they really need and what's really going on and uh, love that. I know we could keep talking about the specifics and dig into this, but I think we'll, for sake of time, refer people to some great resources. (laughs) So where, if people want to know more about your book, Running Lean, and more about the concepts you talk about. I know Running Lean actually started as a series of blog posts that you wrote about and that you're putting out free content available uh, regularly. Where do we go?
1: Yeah, so my blog is theory.com and maybe we can link to that later on. I sure will. And yeah, I mean, the, the story of the book was, it was a series of blog posts that eventually, on the encouragement of my readers, I reluctantly started writing this book and then really enjoyed the process. I'm gearing up to write the second book kind of in much the same way. So yeah, so but the best resource, and that's where you'll also find kind of links to the book, would just be going to com. Okay.
0: And if people go to your business website, uh, Spark Fifty Nine, what do we find there?
1: Sure. So that's more of a, a single, a one-page kind of a, a landing page that just describes what we do as a company. So you can go there and find links to some of the products that we build, and you'll also find a link to the blog. But if you're more interested in the content, which is where most people are interested in that, than the company initially, at least, I would say start with the blog, or you can go to Spark Fifty Nine and learn a little bit more about you know what we are and what we're about.
0: Okay. And that lean canvas that we talked about in the beginning. If I make a, a PDF version of one from that I've used before from Spark 59, put that in the show notes. Does that work? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So people can see what this looks like. So if you want to have the visual of what a link Canvas is, if you haven't seen it before, find that in the show notes. I also asked you for an innovation success quote. I always like to hear what people are motivated by and what they find interesting. So what's, a, uh, what's an innovation quote that you could share with us?
1: Sure. So for me, it just goes back to my story. So going back to the story of building a lot of products, I hit this catalyst moment where I was spending a disproportionate amount of time kind of validating ideas and then kind of resetting them or sometimes even continuing on with them. So I kind of created this personal mantra, which is something I live by. And that is that life is too short to build something that nobody wants. And nobody's probably extreme. Even I would say not enough people want would probably be a more accurate definition. But that's what still drives me today and and why I do what I do.
0: And that's a great mantra for product managers. We want to develop products that solve real-world problems and provide value. So great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate you taking time to talk through the work that you've done and helping product managers learn how to validate a product concept before it actually goes through development.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: And I also want to thank our listeners. A big heartfelt thanks to everyone everyone out there listening I know your desire to become a better product manager and developer and innovator. And I appreciate you listening and keep innovating.
1: Thank you for listening to product innovation
0: training your customers will love you for. To learn more, please check out the blog at theeverydayinnovator.com. Keep innovating.